we had a derisive term for it in the military. It was called discovery learning, where like you would find out something when you ran into it, you know, and you're like, oh, well, we're not supposed to do it that way. And, and so you become highly resistant to discovery learning in the military, whereas and I think it's really important entrepreneurs have to do discovery learning. Where is the boundary? What are we trying to do? And to a certain extent, in the military, you work with the unknowns a lot, but you're trying to get rid of the unknowns. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. Sometimes I get the chance to use my podcast to catch up with people I haven't talked to in a while. That's the case today. My guest is Joe Williams, who's director of polling at YouGov, a big public opinion research company. Joe enjoys his job and was willing to talk frankly about the non-standard path he took to that role, which included more than a decade in the Army and a PhD in government from Harvard. And a summer he spent with me at Time Plots making political data graphic posters. Joe has a sense of humor and was a fun interview. So after a quick word from our sponsor, my interview with Joe Williams at YouGov. This episode is brought to you by Graphicacy. Graphicacy is an analytic design firm that can help you advance the mission of your organization using your own real data and information. They are 21st century visual communicators who create interactive graphics, motion graphics, and data visualizations. You can find Graphicacy at graphicacy.com. That is G-R-A-P-H-I-C-A-C-Y.com. With Graphicacy's help, you can visualize a better world. Well, Joe, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Sure. My name is uh, Joe Williams. I currently work as the director of polling for YouGov America. I was an army brat, uh, so I kind of grew up around the world. My parents split up during my childhood, so I finished up my childhood in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Graduated from high school in Albuquerque. Um, so this is where my life kind of goes a little crazy. I secured an appointment to the United States Naval Academy coming out of high school. That was the highlight of my life. And three months later, I had the disappointment of my life when I quit the Naval Academy. I went to go live in shame a year away from home in Kansas City, uh, living with my dad at the time. Uh, I got a full-time job and I experienced you know, life as a working man. And I also started... Uh, college again at a community college. So my first college hours are actually from Kansas City, Kansas Community College. I actually got homesick. I had applied to the University of Kansas, but then I got homesick and I ended up moving back to New Mexico. So I started going to school full-time at the University of New Mexico. So I went back to live with my mom and that was challenging. Um, plus also I felt the sting of humiliation of having left the Naval Academy. So I ended up enlisting in the United States Army, which my dad did not appreciate very much because he was an officer and he was like, oh my God, what are you doing? So that was the summer of 92. I went off to basic training and I was an Arab linguist, uh, or I went off to go become an Arab linguist. I went to language school in Monterey. That was beautiful. Uh, and then after language school, I spent a little bit of time in Texas. And then after that, I went to Fort Gordon, Georgia, and my my first instance of living in Georgia happened. It was an interesting time. I'm not sure if it was a great idea to enlist, but you know, I did it, um, lived through it, and while I was there, I ended up winning a scholarship to finish my undergraduate education. So the army sent me back to school to um, finish my undergraduate. I started going to school um, there in Augusta at a tiny little school called Augusta College at the time that it changed to Augusta State University. Um, I, I did a year there and then I was married at the time and my uh, ex-wife got into graduate school in Kentucky. So I ended up uh, following her that time and I moved to Kentucky. 
So I finished my undergraduate education at the University of Kentucky, Go Big Blue. That was great fun. Um, loved going to a big SEC school. We won a national championship while I was there. Um, so then I finished. Um, so I finished. I graduated in 99. Um, but because of my collegiate career, I had a ton of hours. And I ended up graduating with um, a BA in political science and a BA in sociology. But then it was time to go back into the Army. So I went back in the Army. And this time I was a tank officer, armor. So I reported to Fort Knox, Kentucky for training. I, and then uh, I was, you know, I was a second lieutenant or armor and I got assigned to Fort Stewart, Georgia, 3rd Infantry Division. Uh, so I had to move on down to Fort Stewart, which was um, the inspiration for Camp Swampy in uh, Beetle Bailey. Uh, so wife and I moved down there uh, and I was a tank platoon leader and a scout platoon leader. My platoon went to Bosnia um, which at the time was kind of like, this was back at the end of the Clinton uh, days in the White House. This was back when they were complaining about op tempo and were we going to pay soldiers extra for how much they were deploying, you know, because people were having to deploy to Bosnia, you know. Literally came back the summer of 2001. My unit came back um, August of 2001. The rest of my squadron um, was uh, scheduled to fly home September 11th, 2001. And well, they ended up stranded in Bosnia and then had to take a long bus trip to Hungary to come back. When the rest of the squadron got back, um, we were told immediately to get ready. We were going to go to war someplace. You know, it wasn't really hard to tell, but we were getting ready to go to war. And so we went from being a, a peacetime army that did peacekeeping deployments where everybody complained about peacekeeping deployments to, you know, no, we're going to be a high intensity warfare and we're going to go like, you know, kick ass someplace. Um, uh, in fact, our squadron commander kept saying that um, as our equipment was coming back from Bosnia, that the boats might make a left turn and head to the Middle East. We went through a um, train up period after that and we were getting ready to go um, uh, to war um, and, uh, interestingly enough, since I was in third idea, I was one of the last officers because of the timing when I was there, I'd become a senior lieutenant and it was actually, I, in fact, I got promoted to captain and it was time for me to move on. And so I was one of the last officers to actually leave, um, Fort Stewart before they locked them down before deploying to operation Iraqi freedom. So I went to Fort Knox for what's called the Armor Officers Advanced Course. And my friends uh, and colleagues all went to the Middle East. It was very surreal to be sitting in a classroom learning about, you know, military operations, then go home and see interviews with like my former um, troop commander on TV as they were invading or getting ready to invade Iraq. Um, so uh, that was that was kind of surreal. Um, eventually I, um, finished my advanced course and, uh, I, um, came down on orders to go to Germany. And, uh, when I deployed to Germany, uh, I was told, okay, you'll get to Germany, but basically a month after you get to Germany, you're going to Iraq. And, you know, my ex-wife was not very thrilled about, uh, the fact that she was going to get left alone in Germany. And true enough, I get to Germany in June uh, in July, I was on a plane downrange, uh, and I spent um, 12 months in um, Baghdad, um, and I was just a staff officer. That was, that was a long 12 months. <laughs> then I uh, worked at the uh, 1st Brigade, 1st Armored Division in Baghdad. We were stationed at the Martyrs Monument, the big teal teardrops. Um, so we got, we got extended. We stuck around a little bit longer at uh, Baghdad International Airport. Then after that, we came back to Germany. Um, and through kind of like a weird twist of fate, I ended up getting a company command when we came back. And so I got to do my company command time. I was commander, headquarters, headquarters company, 1st Brigade, 1st Armored Division. That was a great job. And then because I was a tank officer, I also needed to command a tank company. And so I got moved after a year. Uh, and at the headquarters company that I commanded a tank company that was not as successful a time for me <laughs> and, uh, it didn't go very well. Uh, and so when I 
when I hit my kind of minimum time at commanding there, I was um, ever so politely moved to another position. Um, but um, my unit was already on orders to go to Iraq. So um, instead of getting moved to another position where I didn't go to Iraq, I got moved to a staff position. And I had to go to Iraq a second time. So I spent 14 months this time, started um, outside to Crete. Um, uh, I think it was called Cobb Spiker at the time. And then halfway through that deployment, got moved outside Fallujah with the Marines. I ended up uh, working at a Marine headquarters there. And I was there until February 2007. So that was 2006, 2007. I was pretty bitter <laughs> an entire year. <laughs> I had always thought I was going to be a career Army guy, but I was really bitter. Uh, and so I said, I'm going to take my marbles. I'm going to go home. As soon as um, my tour in Iraq was over, I resigned my commission and I moved on to uh, go to graduate school. The great thing, my ex-wife um, kind of demonstrated how one goes to graduate school. I'd never really given much thought about it. Um, but after seeing her experience, I was like, oh, okay, I'll go to grad school. And so I applied to different grad schools. I was talking to one of uh, the people who was recommending, and I was like, you know, I was applying to different state schools. And they're like, you should apply to something, you know, a little bit more challenging. And I was like, well, you know, I'm pretty happy with state schools. And besides, you know, these applications were not like 90 bucks a piece. I was like, you know, I don't really want to waste money. And he's like, no, no, you should apply something. So on a whim, I applied to Harvard and Yale. I always tell people that I'm pretty sure there were two dudes named Joe Williams who applied to graduate school and they screwed up the packets and I got into Harvard. My first college hours were from, you know, Kansas City Community College. And so Harvard says, yes, you can come here. Well, you go where Harvard says you can go. So, so, I, so I went to Harvard and I started graduate school. I thought I was going to do public opinion and behavior because uh, I wanted to talk about race and politics. And then I took one behavior class and I was like, ooh, I hate polls. I think polls are the worst thing on earth. They're just fake. I, I, I don't like polls. So after that, I, um, uh, I switched over. And also because I had the great fortune of taking a class with Stephen and Solibear and Kenneth Shepsley when I was at Harvard. And I was convinced I was going to be a Congress scholar. That's what I wanted to do. I wanted to work in Congress. Um, so I switched over and um, I became a, uh, a focus on legislatures, uh, Congress in particular. And then I had a very undistinguished graduate school career. I absolutely owe finishing the program to the kindness and encouragement of um, Stephen and Tolbert and Kenneth Shepsley. Um, they pretty much dragged me across the finishing line. I wrote... Um, a short <laughs> dissertation. Um, and I'm so grateful they accepted it. And uh, I escaped from graduate school with a PhD. Um, I got to do a couple of interesting summer jobs while I was in grad school. I worked for a small company called Time Plots one summer. Later on, I got to, um, I actually got to work the 2012 um, presidential election sequence uh, working actually um, for CBS News and their election and surveys coverage unit. And the highlight of my career um, still was um, getting to work in the newsroom uh, on election night when uh, Obama was reelected. Right after that, I had to finish up my dissertation because I was running out of money. So I finished my dissertation. And then uh, the next thing was I needed a job because I was poor. Um, and... Um, I knew I wasn't going to be an academic uh, because if anything proved it, it was writing a dissertation proved I wasn't going to be an academic. Um, and so um, Stephen Solibaher knew a guy who was also a consultant at um, CBS News, Doug Rivers, and Doug needed a guy and I was a guy. And so uh, I sent off my um, CV, interviewed with Sam Lux, fantastic, fantastic, brilliant woman. Um, and I started my career at YouGov and I went from being somebody who was like, you know, I only deal with, um, you know, DW nominate scores and those are real figures to like working in polling, which I had always kind of been derisive about. And that became my real education was learning how to become a pollster. The wonderful folks at, um, uh, at, uh, YouGov really kind of took me in. 
showed me the systems. I, you know, like it's one thing to sit in a uh, methods class in graduate school and they have a canned data set and you just kind of like do stuff to actually working real live data and going out and getting the data and like cleaning the data and figuring out, you know, is that a good question? Is that a bad question? Good question, bad question being, is it, uh, I guess, to be more precise in my language, uh, is it internally valid? Is it, you know, is it answering the thing we're trying to find out? You know, externally valid does apply to other people. Um, learning so much more, you know, like I remember my first day in graduate school, we had to go, they're like, you will learn R. And um, I thought, you know, R was this new device designed to like terrorize me. And then having to learn LaTeX on top of it. I remember in graduate school one day we had a problem set and we had to do the problems in R and then we had to turn in a, a, a LaTeX document. And I remember spending eight hours trying to figure out why my LaTeX document wouldn't compile. And it turned out is because in the font, in the um, text editor I was using, one and L look identical. Uh, and so there was, you know, much gnashing, wailing and gnashing of teeth. So um, I got to work in public polling for YouGov. Um, and the great thing about that is, I mean, and I honestly believe I have the best job in the world is I get to, I got to ask people questions, you know, and ask what people really think. And it's fascinating because I do every day what we were trained to do in grad school. There aren't any distractions. It's I'm working with data. I get to play with data. The company is fantastic. They've um, sponsored us going to um, continuing ed things. So I got to go to a, um, uh, you know, we, we go to different conferences. I'll go to APOR to learn about, you know, what's kind of going on in the public opinion world. Um, we've gone to our studio. We went to our Stan because we were trying to figure out how to do Stan a little bit better. Um, so there were a lot of things, and, and I am by far not any kind of methodologist. And here I am getting to do all these kind of cool gizmo things. Um, and on top of that, I kind of learned, uh, because we use the internet, I kind of became a front-end developer, or I have the qualifications of front-end developer because I kind of had to learn how to play around with the web to get our system to do the things I wanted it to do, not necessarily what it was designed to do. Um, and I have been able to also um, still do a little bit of consulting work with CBS News. So every election since 2012, I have been at CBS News watching the election and working on the decision team. I've literally run thousands of surveys now, and um, I got to move up in the company. And so now they, they gave me a wonderful title of director of polling, which just means I write in even more surveys. I work in the public polling sphere, so um, we do stuff for media clients. I work a little bit when we do surveys with CBS News. Um, we have a partnership with Yahoo News, so I work heavily with Yahoo News. I also do work for academic clients. It's great. I get to do everything I wanted to do in grad school, and I don't have publisher parish or a tenure clock that I have to worry about. So that's that's the long version of my story, I guess. <laughs> well, I've done something approaching 750 interviews on this podcast, and I always ask people about their biography. And sometimes they say two sentences, and sometimes they say more. And I feel like I must have done a very fine job of that first question today because I got so much out of you. With That's, that's what you learn with, with the kind of technique that I have. But it's really uh, good to hear that version of the story. The, you know, what people won't know is that um, that summer that you spent at Time Plots is when I got to know you a bit. Um, and, you know, I'm sure was the pivotal point in the career for you. 
<laughs> Truth be told, that was the summer, and not because of you, but that was um, when I learned, um, I was like, ooh, I don't know that I like Washington, D.C. all that much. Um, <laughs> I had always thought I was going to be in Washington, D.C., and then that summer, I was like, oh, I don't know that I like the city that much. Or, or, or the supervising, yeah. Uh, no, 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 no. It was great. It was great working with, uh, yeah, oh, man, that was, a, that was a great job. That was an absolute fantastic job. It was a lot of fun. I got to do Supreme Court and the Senate and the House and just playing I, with the data for yeah, all those posters. Exactly, was- exactly. Um, and and seriously, like, and now I'm pretty good with. I, I got really good with R that summer. <laughs> uh, I was highly amused to see on your LinkedIn that you had increased the productivity of the company by eight x um, that summer, which. I don't know if you meant to. <laughs> I forgot how he came up with 8X. But I think it was because of the number of iterations we, uh, when we would take a poster back. You're like, no. <laughs> oh, I know what it was. I know what it was because was this Frank uh, would, um, would do stuff Frank in Hamilton. Yeah, yeah. He would do stuff in, um, uh, in, in Illustrator. And when I was able to figure out how to uh, do a SVG fast enough so that like he didn't have to do the whole thing from scratch, I was like, oh, I could do it an hour. What hit took him eight hours, eight times. That's how I got that number. Okay. That's, that's how I remember that number. <laughs> I mean, I had it calculated as like 80. And so I was a little disappointed by oh. what you put on. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I, I think it was the number of times like, no, redo, redo, redo. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I we did iterate on them quite a bit. <laughs> we iterated a lot. <laughs> Which is why they all turned out perfect. Yes, exactly. Um, you know, it's funny because I had wanted to get you on the podcast. I thought of it a couple of years ago and sort of let it slide. And then uh, I was on a, a recently popular uh, internet Social networking. <laughs> Let's, oh. <laughs> That's me being silly. <laughs> uh, I was scrolling upwards, looking at short videos, and I came across something called the Florida Morning Report. <laughs> and I was like, I'll be damned if that man does not look familiar. <laughs> That that shirtless man lying on the beach. <laughs> I know it's anathema to um, many of your regular many of your regular listeners, but I really do like living in Florida. <laughs> so, for those who are uninitiated to this uh, different form of weather casting, you can get the temperature early in the morning. Almost any day uh, <laughs> for St. Petersburg, Florida. <laughs> and, and his lamentations if it drops below 70. <laughs> I'm a true Floridian now. <laughs> so I thought I have got to talk to Joe again. Whoa. And here we are. Yeah. I think it's wonderful to see someone like you whose path was somewhat non standard to a Harvard PhD, (laughs) find yourself in a job that you say is great. I think that is just wonderful. And to have, to say good things about the company and about the position and kind of the, the growth that to me is a huge success story for you and for the company and for the crazy way our system sorts out where people land in their career all the way through when you were giving your biography, I wanted to interrupt and chat with you about different points. And I, I have half a mind to do that and half a mind to ask you more about uh, YouGov and I'll, we'll see which way it lands. If you were talking to uh, little Joe, the Joe of high school or whatever, not that you were ever very small, what would you say about your future if you could have that conversation? Like, because it's so, that path that you, that you describe from father in the army, was in the army, I wanted to ask you what happened with 
the Naval Academy, what happened um, with these various turns and twists. But I think that the, to me, the lesson, I talked to so many people who are 19 or 24 who think you have to ride the straight and narrow to end up as a lawyer or a doctor or whatever. And, you know, it was a little circuitous. What's your relationship with your early self about when you think about these things? Um, yeah. So like I was 17, I had a plan. I was going to be a military academy graduate. I was going to go to one of the service academies. I was going to be a military officer. I was going to be a general. I would have settled for like maybe not being commander of the Joint Chiefs, but you know, I you know I was going to be successful. Um, always wanted to be a military academy. Um, like I just wanted to like make my dad proud of me, you know. And then I got there. You know, the thing about that is. And especially when I was a TA at Harvard, I saw this. You spent your life programmed. Like, you're going to be successful. And you have to go to the next successful thing and the next successful thing. And then what happens when you hit failure? What happens when it's wrong for you? Uh, to a certain extent, <laughs> like, it's going to sound corny, but um, I never really recovered from leaving the Naval Academy. Uh, I feel like I've always been trying to make up for that failure. So, like, I, I enlisted in the Army because I wanted to prove that I didn't get scared away by the military. Why did you leave the Naval Academy? Uh, so, it turns out I'm a very anxious person. <laughs> and maybe the high-pressure military is not a good place to be if you're a very anxious person. <laughs> you don't seem like that anxious of a person. Oh, sure. I'm, yeah, because I'm downing massive doses of anti-anxiety pills right now. And, right. Um, yeah. um, no, seriously. So the Naval Academy, they intentionally give you too many things and you're going to fail. And remember, if your entire life has been, I'm going to be in the service, I got to be, you know, I got to be great. And then they intentionally make it so you're going to fail. And, and I couldn't handle it, you know, like... I would stress about, oh my God, they're going to yell at us. Oh my God, they're going to yell at us. Oh my God. Like, and you want to be perfect. And the whole point is you can't be perfect. You're going to get yelled at. And it's this fake sort of stress situation. I did not handle it very well at all to the point where like, I mean, I'll say it, I'll say it now. I was suicidal when I was at the Naval Academy. Um, I, I, you know, I just, I just couldn't believe that I was going to fail at this. And there was a little bit of sibling rivalry because like, my brother went to Yale and he was the smart one and I was always the dumb one. And so like, I was like trying to prove that I was good enough, you know, like middle child sort of standard crap um, that I, I needed to prove that I was good enough. My dad has this thing. He calls me number two son, which irritates the crap out of me. But I was like always trying to prove I was better than number two son, you know? And um, you know, that's just, so the Naval Academy was, cataclysmic and that sort of thing. And I feel like everything I've been doing has been trying to right that wrong. And that's pretty heavy stuff for like, I was 17 when I showed up, I had peach fuzz, you know, and I had to shave peach fuzz, you know, the entire time I was there. And it just, it broke me in a way that I had no idea a person can be broken. You know? Do you think that's why you now sport a very thick black beard? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I enlisted in the army, still having peach fuzz. And I remember, I remember when I resigned my commission, I was just so freaking grateful. I was like, I'm never shaving again, you know. And so, like, I've been growing this beard since basically 2006, and no, since 2007. And I was just like, I don't have to shave again, yay! Yeah. Oh, I haven't really shaved in a really long time either, but I do trim it back, which I just did today. So, but I, I get that freedom from, from the razor. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, and like, I had like, you know, standard, uh, you know, the standard problem that most black guys have is I had razor bumps and so I had to put like burning stuff on my face and like, I just, I was just looking forward to the day when like, I didn't have to shave and I got my walking papers and I was like, woo. I can, I can grow a beard. And then the real big surprise though, to me was cause like, I, I had never grown out my beard before. It was like, I didn't even know I could grow a beard. And one day I was like, Oh, it looks like a beard. I still think it's a little scraggly on the side, but you know, I'm just thrilled it's there. Another intersection that we have, uh, is around Steve Ansalba here. Uh, and he, I think he's the one who sent you to me at time plots. Um, but 
he was when I was a grad student at MIT, he was over there before he went to Harvard. And among the many nice people I met there, he was the most human and humane of the professors and still a friend. And I did not, I blundered and didn't take advantage of his good graces to get the dissertation written. I went off and started a company instead and never did complete that PhD. But I, I can imagine that he and, and you said Shepsley made a real difference like that. They're that kind of people. And that's a big turning point for you to have that credential and to get all the way through. Right. Oh, yeah. 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 I mean, like I went, you know, I went to the University of Kentucky. Like I love University of Kentucky. Uh, you know, my blood run, runs deep, dark blue. Um, but like, you know, people don't go, wow, you went to Kentucky, you know? Um, and so like, there's a certain star power, but like, it, it is a straight up simple fact that had it not been for Ken Shepsley and Stephen and Sol O'Hare, I wouldn't have finished. I mean, first of all, the university has resources, you know, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not shocking anybody by saying that, but so Steve made it so that I was able to finish the things he, he, he kind of dragged me through. He's like, okay, this is what you need to do. Write this, write this. Okay. Rework that, you know, um, when money was getting a little tight, he put me on as a research assistant, you know, I got to go down to CBS, which was like, just, it was just amazing that I got to go to CBS. Yeah. Cause he did consult to them. Yeah, yeah, because yeah. so Steve, uh, Steve and Doug were um, consultants to CBS, and you know it was one of those things. Once again, you know it's like Steve, like you know um, CBS, you know the guy at CBS needed a guy, and Steve knew a guy, and I was a guy, and so I went down there and I got this job, and I had like the fantastic opportunity. I pay attention to inequality and like all the unfairness that there is in the world, and I will flat out admit that I was extremely, extremely fortuitous to go to school where I went because it gave me opportunities that I don't think I would have had anyplace else. And it's funny because it's another thing about life. Like whoever that was that encouraged you to not just apply to state schools and, and to take a flyer on the couple of the bigger names, that conversation makes such a difference in your path. Yeah. So that was, um, um, Alan Scarborough, there we go. Alan Scarborough at Augusta State University at the time. Um, and he was the one who, who said, try something harder. And the thing about that is when you go to these small schools, you get like this fantastic attention. You know, um, what I found at Kentucky was if you apply yourself and you go make yourself known and you talk to the professors, you get that attention. When I was at Augusta State, it was very easy to get that attention because all you had to do was like, like appear interested and, you know, the professors would watch out for you. And so I am, I am so immensely grateful for the people who took a second to say, Oh, you seem to care about this. You know, um, in fact, it was my, um, American politics one professor, um, uh, at Augusta state was when I knew I wanted to do American politics. And that's when I found out that, you know, Politics wasn't about, you know, persuading people. It was about these structural differences and the way the political races are set up. And so, like, we already know who's going to win things. I thought that was magic, you know. Then I started doing the reading. I was like, oh, wow, this is really cool. And so I started loving, like, the inside baseball stuff of um, politics. As I've been talking to more and more people, I've started to come across people who had a military background who are now in politics, who are now in sort of the business of politics as you are. And you had a pretty long run there that was, as you testified, um, included good times and bad times and times overseas that sounded uh, a little rough. And I guess following and leading, what did you take broadly from that, all that time in the military that shapes how you think about how to do your job, how to lead the right life, et cetera? Um, so I think the most important thing was I worked for some really brilliant dudes. I don't think he thinks I'm the best, but like I think he retired as a four-star general or a three-star general, but Sean McFarlane, I worked for him. Um, I worked for um, an absolute brilliant staff officer who went on to retire as a colonel, um, Mike Shroud. Even the company commanders I had, we're just like 
they were organized guys. And the other thing too, is I also saw, you know, kind of leadership by negative, you know, like what not to do. And, and the mistakes I made were not a reflection of the great examples that they gave me. They were like, you know, I figured out new ways to screw things up. But one of the things I take away from it is people who understood time. And um, the best commander I had understood time. He would sit down and he would say, this is the time we have to get these tasks done. There are too many tasks for us to get done, but these are the ones that we can't drop. You know, um, And so he would sit down with his calendar and say, do this, do this, do this, do this. And then he would come back and look at those things. When I worked for uh, Mike Shrout, he was freaking brilliant because, well, first of all, he's brilliant. And second of all, it was like, he taught me have a plan. And I'd be caught up by, well, I don't know what's going to happen. He goes, it doesn't matter. You don't have to know what's going to happen. If you have a plan, then when things go wrong, you know what it should look like and you can fix that. Those were great, great mentors. And um, um, they showed me how to do things. You know, they're like, oh, if you want to get something out of a senior, what you basically do is you do all the work and then present it to them and then let them take it from there. Coordination, having to work with people, having to work outside of your comfort zone and things. Um, those were all great experiences. Then I will tell you the number one experience you get in the military is putting up with crap. You can take kind of like the long view on it um, of like, you know, like I'll make a joke to um, Delia, my current boss. Um, I'll say, you know, well, you know, she's like, oh, I'm sorry you had to work that Saturday. I'm like, it's not Christmas in Baghdad. I'm good to go. I would tell people, you know, my my requirements for a good job are air conditioning, indoor plumbing, and I'm not getting shot at. That's a great job. <laughs> you know, So you learn to put up with things, learning to put up with things. We're all in it together. Um kind of, we need to accomplish the mission. We need to accomplish the task. We have clients that want things like, you know, Saturday afternoon. And, you know, one answer could be like, I don't work on Saturday afternoons. The other one is we're going to get it done, you know? And, and I think that's the thing I appreciate the most about my time in the military is you have a task, you got to go get it done and keep getting it done. I think it was interesting when you worked for me that for that brief time when I was operating under a different kind of notion of time probably than you were used to where I was wearing a kind of entrepreneurial hat of let's try stuff and you were wanting the sergeant to sit down and say do these eight things in sequence I thought it ended up being a good a good collaboration but it took a little bit to sort that out right right you know, and I think that's the big challenge, I think, for a lot of military guys coming out is the world doesn't operate, you know, like on a training schedule where you do X, Y, and Z. There's a little bit more give and take. There's a little bit more finesse. There's a little bit more cooperation. And I think you figure out how people work. Like a lot of times in the military, there's like, you got to accomplish this task. But that's because somebody has clearly defined the task. It's a completely different experience when you don't know what the task is. And, and so we had a derisive term for it in the military. It was called discovery learning, where like you would find out something when you ran into it, you know, and you're like, oh, well, we're not supposed to do it that way. And, and so you become highly resistant to discovery learning in the military, whereas and I think it's really important entrepreneurs have to do discovery learning. Where is the boundary? What are we trying to do? And to a certain extent, in the military, you work with the unknowns a lot, but you're trying to get rid of the unknowns, you know. So what, what else do you think people should know about YouGov and your job there? That we are trying really, really hard to be right. Um, a lot of people, especially because I get to read the comments on our surveys and they're like, oh, you're a shill for the Republicans. You're so in the tank for Trump. And then there are other people who are like, oh, my God, you're the worst lib liberal scum out there. This is totally in the tank for the Dems and everything. We were all A students. We want to be right. When 2016 happened, you know, and 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 people perceived us to be wrong, and we felt it because we we had Hillary Clinton winning, you know. And it doesn't matter that you can say, well, 110,000 people in three different states changed their votes, she wins. That's not the fact. It's the fact that we we got it wrong. The and electoral so, vote. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, but that's what counts. <laughs> yep, it does. That's great. She won a whole bunch of surplus votes in California, but that doesn't make her the president, you know. Um, and and I can say, oh well, my national population, you know, popular vote polls were like within margin of error. She still didn't win the presidency, you know. Um, like we are super. Con- I, I listened to your conversation with John, and um, uh, we were talking. He was talking about how. We're looking at where are the shy Trump voters? What did we do wrong? What's our frame look like? You know, because you want to be right. And I mean, the great satisfaction last year was we started asking people, have they gotten the vaccine? And um, at first, our numbers, you know, were tracking really well with CDC. And it's one of those things where like, I'm a pollster. I know this stuff is supposed to work. But when we weren't even waiting and we don't wait on um, um uh, vaccine status and our numbers were matching CDC at first. And we were just like, I was like, this is black magic. It works. You know, we were, <laughs> we were like, all right, it works. Okay. I feel confident about this, you know? Um, so uh, that's the thing we care about. So we're asking questions like one of the things is our blind spots. Um, Stephen Shakespeare, um, the CEO of the company was like, we have got to make sure that we don't have blind spots because like, you know, a bunch of PhDs, you know, our tendencies are to lean towards kind of like a kind of leftist sort of perspective. And what we want to know is really the truth. We want to make sure that we're reporting what people are actually thinking. And so we ask these questions, we're like, well, is there bias in that question? You know, because if you ask a question about immigration, well, are we talking about legal immigration? Are we talking about illegal immigration? Are we asking the question in a way that somebody who thinks differently about the problem is going to respond. Do we talk about illegal aliens or do we talk about undocumented people? Another thing that we think about is like uh, gender identity, you know, because we have gender question, male or female. And the problem with the, with our statistics is we base everything off of what the census reports. And unfortunately, there's only a binary category of gender in the census. And so like I know um, different polling organizations, you know, Gallup, Pew, all of them are 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 wrestling with this of like, well, how do we talk about um, gender the right way? Also, talking about uh, or getting the right sample, you know, um, one of the frustrating things about certain popular people who talk about polls is that it's very easy for them to slam the pollsters, and they don't realize how hard a job it is. You know, we are trying really, really, really hard to be right, and. If you have people who are reluctant to take a take a poll and, you know, that's your sample composition is off, you can be off. And, you know, in a, an election that's decided by 110,000 votes in three different states, that's important, you know. Um, and so the, the thing I would tell everybody is that we are dedicated to making sure we get it right. All this time steeped in public opinion, what do you think is notable about what the electorate thinks right now or portions of it? Like what stands out to you as important or surprising or telling? So the first thing I would say is that um, people know the right answer to give. Um, And so like when you have um, like approval, job approval or something, Democrats kind of know they have to approve of the Democratic president and they kind of have to disapprove of a Republican president and vice versa. And so when we read a top line poll and it says approval and it seems pretty static, you know, it doesn't really move that much. But then when you look at the underlying issues, like how do you prove their handling on X, Y or Z? If you ask the question, how do you approve of Biden's handling of X, Y or Z? You're, you're going to get back a partisan response. Actually, a better example would be kind of like the kerfuffle about um, critical race theory, right? So if we ask people, you know, what's your opinion of critical race theory? If they've heard the partisan response to it, they know they're supposed to either for it or against it. Um, But then if you break down the components of critical race theory and say, well, do you think, you know, racism has affected people? And they'll say, oh, yes. And so if you break down the individual ideas that make up critical race theory, People are with you. You know, people understand where it's coming from. But, you know, but there's a whole package. And I kind of think that what we do in public opinion research for popular media is kind of 
we're really gauging how much the public frames of the debate have been accepted, you know, that it's been digested by your, by kind of like thought leaders, we'll say of like, you know, well, this is the democratic response and this is the Republican response. And all we're just seeing now is, you know, what is um, the way you can view something partisan that I don't think the world is really as split up as the polls would make it out to be um, that a constant complaint is that people want to say, well, my feelings are a little bit more nuanced and, you know, I, I feel more than just strongly agree. I, I want to explain why I somewhat agree or somewhat disagree. And unfortunately we work in, you know, discrete quantities, right? I'm wondering about to what degree you think pollsters can think into the future. You can understand with all of its difficulties that you might be able to have the quote snapshot in time of public opinion. But a lot of the what the use is of polling, it seems to me, including by some of those people who write about it that can be disparaging that you might be mentioning, <laughs> is that they might be like used to say, this is what's going to happen two weeks from now or six months from now or whatever. How do you think about what you measure now and what meaning it has down the road? Oh, well, first of all, any pollster that tries to predict the future more than a couple of weeks isn't worth their weight. And, you know, like I remember running a poll and, you know, if we went by poll results in 2013, then we should be in the second term of Jeb, exclamation point, Bush. Well, some some things it seems like are more predictable than others, like a primary, a presidential primary process might be generally unpredictable. That one was, but you can probably have a pretty good relationship between the economy and presidential approval or something. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, but can we predict what the economy is going to look like? When you look out to 2022 and 2024 in this country, given the trends, given how strongly people feel what they feel or seem to at this moment, what, what do you think we have in store? Well, I mean, but this just goes back to basic political science, right? Um, and so if we're going to look at electoral politics, um, midterm elections are tough for the party in power. Um, now, there are a bunch of different theories about why midterm elections are tough for the party in power. But the, but the basic thing is midterm elections are tough for the party in power. You know, And so like I remember when you were talking to um, John um, about 2010, and that was a tough year for um, Democrats. Well, part of the reason it was a tough year in Democrats was because 2006 and 2008 were banner years for Democrats. And, and so that's the whole exposure theory. And so public opinion is kind of like following along with that ride. There, there are structural issues. And this is what got me interested in political science is that we know it's going to be a tough year for Democrats. And it's going to be a tough year for Democrats because it's a midterm. Let's go back with a counterfactual. Let's say Trump had won 2020 and he's going into the 2022 elections. We would be expecting a Republican bloodbath. People would be tired. That's what happened in 2018. Yeah. And that's what happened in 2006. And that's what happened in 2010. And that's what happened in 2014. You know, so like the mere fact that we know this is going to happen again is why maybe public opinion later on is like explaining what we already knew was going to happen. You know, so Democrats are going to be Democrats are unenthusiastic. Republicans are enthusiastic. Now, the interesting thing are the different constellation of events that happen. So 2014 was, you know, it was the sixth year of an eight year administration. It was time for Democrats to take a hit. Finally, they lost the Senate. You know, but also Ebola was going on. So you can argue that Ebola was the thing, you know, and and now it's like, well, maybe not Ebola was the thing. Maybe it's just, you know, so what was was um, COVID the thing that got Trump? You know, I mean, it was a narrow election. So it's a thousand different things that it can be. And so public opinion gives you an insight of what people may be thinking at the time. But we also know from patterns that these things are going to happen, you know. Is this uh, decade-long interest in public opinion, do you think that's where you are for the foreseeable future? It, is it still real interesting for you? Is that attenuating? What are you thinking about for the future? 
I'm stunned I'm even here in the first place. If you had, you know, 10 years ago, I had no idea I'd end up as a pollster. So, you know, take it what you will. I love my job. I, I love what I get to do. I absolutely love the people I get to work with. I mean, I mean, Doug's brilliant. Delia Bailey, brilliant. Like, I just get to work with brilliant people who think long and hard about things. And I'm proud I get to be with this organization. Is there a question that I haven't asked you that you'd like to answer? Yeah. If you are a graduate student, being an academic isn't the only thing out there. You know, um, I remember when I uh, first took the job at, at, at YouGov and I was looking because I have an ego. Um, I was on Twitter and I have a bunch of friends who are big name professors now. They've gotten their tenure and they've got books and everything about them. Sometimes you'll see this discussion about, you know, like, well, should I advise somebody who wants to go to graduate school that they shouldn't even think about it because they won't get an R1 job? And I'm like, holy Christ. Uh, you know, like there's more to life than an R1 job. What does even an R1 job mean? Oh, that you are at a top tier research institution. So, um, uh, so you're at the flagship university uh, in a uh, uh, so the university of name the state. You know that um, uh, some people would say pejoratively, like you didn't want to end up at a directional state university. Southwest Missouri State. Exactly. Northeast. You know, that was one of those things. And like, you'd be a slave laborer if you do anything more than three, two, you know, and, and there are all these, you know, like, I remember this one woman I was in graduate school with, she was embarrassed to tell people that she landed a job at Ole Miss. And I was like, why are you embarrassed about Ole Miss? That's, that's a top notch school. And, and she's, and she's like, well, it's not, you know, it wasn't chips, you know, it wasn't, you know, the, it wasn't one of the big five or something. And I'm like, man, those are some perverse in, uh, incentives. You know, um, I absolutely love my life. I have a fantastic job. I get to do everything I wanted to do in graduate school. I don't have to put up with a lot of the stuff. I mean, now there's other stuff I do have to put up cause I, you know, I work for a corporation, but there is life outside of the ivory tower. I mean, you can have a very good life outside the ivory tower. And if the only thing that's going to make you happy is being an R1 professor with a 2-1 load, um, then you're in for a world of hurt. You know? <laughs> Unless you get it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. If you're the one person who gets, you know, if you're the, the, the two people that get that job. But I'm going to tell you, there were 20 people in my cohort you know, there are people in cohorts all over the place. Figure out the odds, figure out what makes you happy, and then go do that. And don't let somebody else's definition of success kind of ruin your life. You know? I, I couldn't agree more as someone who uh, bailed out myself, but found a life that seems to work for me. I'm, I'm pretty yeah. happy. Yeah. Yeah. You didn't do bad for yourself. I know. I'm hanging in. Look, I have my own podcast. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. I'm, you're not a guest on my podcast. I'm a guest on yours. (laughs) Anyway, it's been uh, a a great time to chat with you. Uh, Anything else you want to say? Um, no, thank you. Um, once again, thank you for that opportunity to work for you. Um, uh, that summer, it was a great job. Uh, and I, I really, uh, I just appreciate all, all the people, including yourself, who have been mentors for me and have uh, enabled me to get to where I am now. Thanks for your time. That was Joe Williams at YouGov. Joe is Florida Morning Report on TikTok. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found.